0: Father, we were reminded that one of your choice men, David, you used him to pen some words. And they are very famous words. They are very true words, and they are very comforting words when he said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And what he really meant by that is that you were the one that he looked to to lead him through life. And not only would you lead him, but you had the power to lead him, and you had the power to protect him, and you had the power to provide for him and to give him everything that he needed. If anyone ever knew um, seasons of great accomplishment and experienced the applause of men, it was David. And if anyone ever knew shame, and embarrassment and humiliation over his own failure—it was David, and that's why we all relate to him so much. But through all that he went through, and the good chapters and the bad chapters, you remained faithful, and you remained his God and his shepherd. We are at different uh, places in life. We have guys here uh, from, we, we 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 have some young men that are just getting rolling in life. Uh, They've got huge choices in front of them. We've got guys that are at midlife, and they've got uh, all the stuff that comes with that, the bills and the pressure and the responsibility. They're trying to provide for their families, and trying to be good husbands and good dads. Uh, That's that's overwhelming today, because uh, it seems like everything is set against having a good marriage. Everything is, is attempting to rip our kids out from under us and deceive them and lie to them and steal their hearts and souls. And sometimes we feel absolutely outmanned and outnumbered trying to protect them. Others of us are further down the road. We've raised our kids. We've got grandkids. That's a whole new chapter. We can't believe we're this far down the road, but we are. And no matter where we are, you're still our shepherd. And, and you provide for us daily, whether we're 20 or whether we're 90, we're walking by faith and not by sight. We all have areas of our life that we can't seem to figure out, that we can't get our arms around, that we can't get under control. And in that area, we are trusting you with everything we have. It's different for every guy. But we all have a, a need that we feel deeply in our lives, that if you don't make a way, if you don't come through, if you don't do what only you can do, it's bad news. But we have seen you come through, and we have seen you make a way. I, I know, Lord... I don't know this factually because no one has expressed it to me, but this many guys, there's, there's one or two, maybe three, four guys in here, and although they look fine, they're, they're on the edge of despair in their lives. They have never been in such a hard place. They have never dealt with such deep disappointment. And, and they're perhaps even wondering if it's worth it to keep on living. We would pray for the man that finds himself here in that condition, that tonight by the power of your word that you would would instill hope into his heart, that you would remind him that you know exactly where he is and that you know exactly what is going on and that your hand has not been lifted off of him, Help him to defeat the enemy's accusatory thoughts that he's not worth anything, that he's not producing anything, that his best days are behind him. I pray for that man, whoever he might be, that you would give him perspective and ground his feet tonight in the truth so that he can fight off the lie. We're all at different points. We all need you. We need you to save us. We need you to deliver us. We need you to help us. We need you to provide for us. We admit we don't have what it takes. We just don't have it. We need you. We need you to breathe. We need you for every step of our lives. So tonight we ask you again to teach us, instill the Word of God in us, give us teachable hearts and teachable spirits. So that we can take another step and trust you. For the rest of this day, when we get up in the morning, we do it all over again. By your power and by your grace. And by your mercy and by your great forgiveness. We glory in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Boaz in the Old Testament. And uh, if you're a first-time guy and you know your Bible, you're a little concerned because there is no book of Boaz, but there is a book of Ruth. I like to call the book of Ruth the book of Boaz because, at least in my mind, the, the primary figure in the book of Ruth is is Boaz. And we've been working our way through this uh, this little book, but there's a lot of stuff in here. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, There's not a wasted word in the Bible. There's not a wasted page. There's not a wasted paragraph. All scripture is inspired by God. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And when you look at this little Old Testament book that we call Ruth, that I like to call Boaz, we find ourselves now um, at the beginning of chapter two. We have finished chapter one, and if you've been with us, you 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 probably know more about this book in chapter one than you knew before, unless you've studied it in depth. To kind of recap where we are as we begin chapter two, there, there are three phrases that um, that describe chapter one. Chapter one has not been um, it's not been a good chapter. You got Ruth, but you got this other woman by the name of Naomi. Now, here's the deal with those women. Now, let me just recap this real quick, and then I'll give you the three phrases. Uh, when you look at Ruth chapter 1, and this can be confusing, because it doesn't start with Ruth. She comes later in the story. But you got a woman by the name of Naomi, and she's married to a guy named Elimelech. They're Jews. They live in Bethlehem, old little town of Bethlehem. Okay, That's where they live. Uh, but there's a famine. Why is there famine? Because the people have gotten away from God. It's the time of the judges, it says in verse 1. The time of the judges, Find not more about the judges, you read the previous book. It was that period of time between the end of Joshua's reign and the events that begin to happen in 1 Samuel with the birth of Samuel. So it's that 300-year period, give or take, in the middle It was a time where the people of Israel got away from Yahweh, the one true God, and they kept going after idols. They forgot the one true God, and they kept going downhill spiritually, and then they'd get in trouble, and then after a period of time, they would be overrun by their enemies. They'd call out to God. He would send a deliverer, a judge, a leader, who would turn them back to God. And then they would be at peace with nations, and they'd get prosperous again. See, there's a danger in getting prosperous. There's a danger when your life goes easy. There's a danger when everything you touch turns to gold. And you know what the danger is? You forget God. Flip over with me real quick to Deuteronomy. I don't know. Let me take a look. Yeah, it's six. Take a look at six. You say, hey, I don't have to worry about that prosperity thing because that's not where I am right now well, join the club. We were, we were there a while back, but uh, hey, we're, 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 we're in trouble now. We're, we're in deep yogurt right now. And we may be there a while, and it may be getting worse here before long. But you know that, you're aware of that. But you see, that's not all bad. Because when we lose things, and when things are taken away from us, it tends to focus our attention on our need for God. It was Joe Lewis, the great heavyweight champion of the world, who said, I don't love money, but it quiets my nerves. (laughs) I like that. When you don't have it, you kind of get nervous. But see, when you have it, you tend to forget God. In Deuteronomy 6, when God was speaking to them as he was going to take them into the promised land... And he was going to bless them. Uh, Verse 10. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities, which you did not build. This is what he was going to do for them. He's going to give them great cities. And I'm going to give you houses full of all good things, which you did not fill. Um, You know, Some of you really worked, a lot of guys work work hard, you start out with nothing, and then you know, the years go by and you're working and you're working, and there comes a day when maybe you and your wife have somebody draw up your dream house and you actually build it and you fill it with stuff. There's a lot of work and sweat, blood, sweat, tears, all that stuff. Not here, God says, I'm going to give it to you. That's what he did. I'm going to give you houses full of good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. Cisterns were how they captured water, runoff water. They would hewn them out of granite under the ground. I've told you about the one in Israel you can walk down to at Har Megiddo, Armageddon. It's like 260 steps into this great cistern, and you see the chisel marks. Because one day, a guy said, you know, I think I'll hewn a cistern. And he took a hammer and he took a chisel and he started hitting the granite. It took a lot of work to get that 268 steps down there. It took a lifetime, several lifetimes. So for someone to give you a cistern that had already been hewn, that was quite a gift. I'm going to give you vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. And you will eat and be satisfied. When that all happens... What a great thing. What kind of prosperity. What a great gift. And then watch this. Verse 12. When I give that to you, then watch yourself. That you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. That's exactly what happened in the book of Judges. They turned to other gods. They were given a lot, but they turned to other gods. And then when God would give them a judge, and it happened 12 times, and relieve them, they'd be okay for a while, and then their hearts would go after other gods again. So that's a downward cycle in the book of Judges. So Elimelech and his family are in the town of Bethlehem. There's a famine because God was judging the nation and was disciplining the nation. This guy tries to outrun the discipline of God, goes to Moab, a godless, wicked nation, who were the enemies of Israel, and who served false gods. He never should have taken his family in there, but he didn't have a heart for God. He's just looking. He, he thought he was pretty sharp and sp- pretty smart, and he could outrun adversity. His plan was just to go over there for a sojourn, which is a brief journey. Winds up, and you know, he thinks, he thinks he's got his Krugerrands, he's, he's, he's sold short, he's done all this stuff. This sucker's slick. And he went out full, the Bible says. And his plan was to be there for a brief time. But what happened was that he died, his sons died, they had married Moabite women, and so now you've got his wife Naomi, you've got the sons' uh, wives, Orpah and Ruth, and now they've lost everything. That's that's what's happened in chapter one. As we said last week, um, and this is where we come to the three phrases to describe where we are. You you can summarize uh, chapter 1 and the life of these two women. Now Ruth and Naomi are coming back to Bethlehem. They're coming back because they're left destitute and penniless. It's hard to describe the condition of these women. Women didn't have a lot of rights back then. Uh, They couldn't go down and get food stamps. They couldn't get down and get some kind of government grant. It was sort of like they were living in their car. When we were out in California uh, for a couple weeks this summer at my mom's place, I was out driving and pulled into a gas station, and uh, I was filling the rental car, and I look over across the, you know, in the other lane. And there's a gal there, uh, window down, I'm going to say, late 20s, and there was a guy next to her. And I just noticed her. she just looked she just looked completely defeated. She looked in complete despair. And I saw her, and I'm pumping gas, and I look over, and, and I, it, it just looked bad. And, and it struck me because she was about the age of my daughter, Rachel. And, and she said, sir, excuse me. She said, do you know how far it is to... And I said, yeah, it's about 150 miles. She said, okay, thanks. And then the guy leaned over, and he said, uh, you don't know me. And if I tell you this story, you probably won't believe me." I said, well, try me. And he, he, he told me about what was going on with him. And I kept looking at her. And they didn't have any money. So I said, hey, you know what, where are you going? The guy said, we're going over here. I said, OK, I'm going I'm to buy you a tank of gas. I found this credit card on the sidewalk. I'm using it. You might as well use it. <laughs> No, I didn't say that. (laughs) Now, they might have been putting me on. Maybe they took me. I don't know if they did or not. But I kept looking at her. And see, when I think about where Naomi and Ruth are at the end of chapter one, that's kind of where they are. They are absolutely downcast and discouraged. There are three phrases I would use to describe where they are. Number one, we used last week. They're deeply disappointed with how life has turned out and where they are in life. Deeply, deeply disappointed. You talk about taking shots. Their their husbands are gone, they're bereaved, they're penniless, they're homeless. They have no prospects of things turning around. So they're deeply disappointed with life. Uh, Secondly, they are humanly hopeless. That's where they are. They're without hope. That's a horrible place to be. And see, that's when people do something very, very radical. That's when someone will take a gun, and shoot themselves. Someone will jump off a bridge. Humanly hopeless, number three. They were, they were without means. Now, if you've ever been in this condition, you can relate. Deeply disappointed, humanly hopeless, and without means. When we say without means, they were were out of cards. They'd played every card. They had no resources. Um, They couldn't use the ATM. Their line of credit was full. When we say, sometimes when you're in a spot, you've got some means, you've got some resources. It might be, it might be a line of credit. It might be um, a friend in, uh, in, an, in in an influential place. It might be a dynamite resume. You might have a network of guys that you've known since college. We, we all have different means. We all have different resources that, when push comes to shove, and you're really in a crunch, you can you 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 can hit this one or talk to this one, or you got some stuff you can tap. You don't want to tap, but if you have to, you can do it. You can make a call. You can talk to somebody. But there's a day when that all dries up, and it's all over, and you're finished, and that's where they were. You're completely without means. Nobody wants to be there. Most of us will be there at least once at some point in our life where our lives are in the trash heap. We're in the dumpster. Now, what do you do when you get there? It's a horrible place to be. Nobody wants to be there. It's interesting to me, though, how as I talk to different men and you hear their stories, and see, you look around. You look around at the guys and everybody looks, you know, in the right mind. You know, everybody's fine. Everybody's good. The, The stories are amazing. What God has taken men through to get them here and where you are in life uh, most of us came into the kingdom, the kingdom of God kicking and screaming, as C.S. Lewis said. We didn't want to come. We, we, we liked the way we were living. We thought we knew what we were doing. We were in control. We were in charge. And what does he do? He allows us to hit the wall at about 200 miles an hour. And we hit rock bottom, and we are completely without hope. We are without means. We are desperate. Thomas Boston was a pastor in England a couple hundred years ago. And he has a little paragraph on means, M-E-A-N-S. Here's what he says. Do not think little of means, seeing that God often works by them. Okay? And he that has appointed the end orders the means necessary for gaining the end, you've got to have certain means on your journey. You've got to have food, you've got to have clothing, you got to have. Your, why do you have a job if you have a job? Well, some, you think back how you got that job. There was a series of somebody perhaps knew somebody, a friend maybe referred you, or you knew someone from this or that, or whatever it is you're doing now. How did you get where you were? There were some means involved. How do you get income? Well, there's a, there's a source of the means. You understand what I'm saying. This is what this guy, and God ordains different means. All right, now, now, stay with us, because we don't usually use this term in this way. He has appointed the end, and he orders the means necessary for gaining the end. Now, watch this. However, do not rely upon means, for they can do nothing without God. Do not despair if there be no means, for God can work without them. Oh, I don't have a job. I run into guys all the time that don't have jobs that are somehow making it. And they're astonished. They can't quite tell you how they're making it. I'll never forget the guy I met in Sacramento probably 10 years ago. And we were at this conference, and he came up to me during the break, and he said, Steve, I've got to tell you, it's, and I may not get the, the numbers exactly right. I think he told me that he'd been out of work for the last 22 months, and he was starting a new job on Monday. I said, really? And he said, yeah, I have to tell you, it's been the most interesting chapter of my entire life. Because when I was laid off, my wife and I sat down and looked at our financial situation, and we figured we had enough money to make it for 90 days. That was it. And we were concerned. And I'm, I'm working hard to get a job, and I'm doing everything I can do, and nothing's happening. So we had enough to make it for 90 days. At the end of 90 days, my wife and I sat down, and we looked at our financial situation, and we figured out we had enough to make it for another 90 days. And we weren't quite sure how that happened, but that's where we were. And then at the end of that 90 days, uh, basically, that's what happened to him for, it was either 18 or 22 months. He said, it's been the wildest thing I've ever seen in my life. He said, it's been great for my kids because we've seen God come through in ways we never saw God come through before because we never needed God to come through. It's really demonstrated to us that He is the living God. You say, I don't have means. Well, you know what? You don't need means. If that's where God has you, it's where God has you. And you see... Anyway, let me go on. Are you getting this? Have any of you guys had that experience at all? Anybody? Raise your hand if you have. I'm just curious if I'm the only guy in the world. Look at this. See? You've had no means, and what did God do? He makes a way. Do not despair if there be no means, for God can work without them. That's a great God, isn't it? Man, I don't have that. Well, guess what? You got God. You're okay. God can work without them as well as with them. So if you got it, fine. If you don't have it, fine. Hosea chapter 1, verse 7. Do not despair. If there be... No, no, I'm, I'm, this, is, this print is too small and I, and I missed a phrase. Hosea one seven says this, I will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by the bow. I will not save them by the sword. I won't save them by battle or by horses or by horsemen. But I, the Lord, will save them. You know, it's interesting to me, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, there were certain stipulations the king of Israel could not do not supposed to increase in wives, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't supposed to increase horses. You know why? Because horses pulled chariots. And all the other surrounding nations, they had chariots. Latest technological advance. Do you know that God would not allow Israel to have chariots? Sometimes you look at other people, and they have this, and it's legitimate, and they have this, and they have that. They all have that, they all have it, they all have it, and then you look at you, and you don't have it. Why is that? Well, God doesn't want you trusting in that. God wants you trusting in him. Some times God will withhold something from you that other people legitimately have, and you can get upset and start comparing, but don't do that. You see, there's a reason you don't have it. There's a reason he didn't want them to have multiple horses. He didn't want them to, to have chariots, because when they went in the battle, he wanted them trusting in him. God's always forcing us to the place of trust, and it's the last cotton-picking place, I want to go, to be real honest. Don't you feel the same way? But it's the best place to be. And it's where I need to be, so he keeps driving me to that place of trust. And he's got every guy in here at that place in some way, shape, or form in your life. Different circumstances, different issues, but he's all got us trusting. He goes on and he says... If the means be unlikely, he can work above them. So, what does that mean? That means if you're in a situation and there are no means available to you, and for you to get out of the situation, it's highly unlikely because the odds are stacked against you. It's interesting in life, isn't it, how God will force us into times in our lives where He walls us in and our means are gone. Our, our, our supply our revenue stream, our income stream, it dries up and we think to ourselves, how in the world am I going to make it? And, and, and it, it just dries up. What do you do in that situation? He, he drives you into it. He walls you off. And that which you would normally have, uh, you don't have. Classic example, God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, in order to have a great nation, your descendants are going to be as many as the stars in the heaven. Well, the problem was, Abraham was getting close to 100. His wife was 90, and he didn't have one male heir. Legitimately. There are times in our life when you see we run out of means, and if you know the story, and I think you do, Abraham was getting up in years, he knew the promise of God, There's no way. I mean, there's just no way he's going to be able to have a son. And his wife says to him, as was the custom, well, you can go into your handmaiden, my handmaiden, Hagar. So what does he do? He sleeps with Hagar, his wife's servant, and she conceives and he has a son and he names him Ishmael. Ishmael, why did he do that? He thought he needed to help God out. God doesn't need help. God doesn't need our schemes, does he? God wants us to trust. What does this guy say? If the means be unlikely, he can work above them. You say, it's highly unlikely. And and, and then you look at Abraham, and and you look at Romans 4.19. Turn over there with me real quick. We're eventually going to get to Ruth 2. But I'm I'm setting this up because this is where these folks were. Romans chapter 4. Verse 19, and, and, and you see how God, we've said this before in here, God works, but God works so strangely. He doesn't work the way that we think he ought to work. You, you, you ever look at your situation, you're hemmed in, and you're trying to figure your way out, and you're trying to strategize your way out, and then God does, some, he does something completely out of left field, that shocks you and stuns you, and you just it never crossed your mind. Why is that? It's because his ways are not your ways. His thoughts are not your thoughts. Where am I going? Romans 4.19? Look at this. Now, what was the promise? The promise was he was going to have a son. Verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, and he contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. It's not looking real good. There's There's no sap in the tree to use a colloquialism, huh? (laughs) Sucker's dried up, the sucker's dead. It's over. And his wife's, I mean, she's done too. They're done. And what does this say? Without becoming weak in faith. How is that? How is that? Well, he understood that even though the means be unlikely, God can work above me. God makes his own means. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And see, this is the Christian life. The Christian life is you find yourself in a crisis. God leads you into crisis. You're walled in. There's no escape. There's no way out. Your means dry up. You say, there's no way out of this. And then what does God do? God makes a way and he delivers you and you give glory to God. And when he does that, you tell your kids and you tell your grandkids. That's, what, that's, that's pretty much the Christian life. It's from faith to faith. It's from giant to giant. It's it's from one impossible situation to the next. This is a lousy economy. It's a horrific economy. Yes, it is. And you should be sleeping well at night. Because if you know who your God is, and you know what he has promised to do for you, you're not going to be without hope. But when you get your eyes off of Christ, and when you get your eyes off of the Bible... And you're spending too much time watching the news. You say, well, how much is too much time? For me, about 30 seconds (laughs) these days. I just give it a glance. Can't really give it more than that. Really don't read the paper much anymore. Really don't turn on certain stations I used to turn on. It's just bad news. Don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What I need to put in my mind are not, I'm not saying put your head in the sand. I'm saying be aware, but don't meditate on that. Don't let that be your fodder. Don't let that be your feed. you got to meditate on the Word of God. you got to meditate on who He is and the promises, and that He's in absolute control and that He's an absolute charge. That's what you have to do. So this guy's body is dead. He understood it's not a problem for God. Oh, by the way, did he have a son? In God's way, in God's time, he conceived with her? and It wasn't even physically possible. You ever run into couples, and they've been to the doctors, and they're trying to have a baby, and they just it's, and, and it's, there's no hope. They've been to this procedure, and this doctor, and they've been doing it for years. I've met dear people like this, and it's heartbreaking. And it's interesting to me how often I've seen this, where, and then God opens the door and they adopt. Well, thank God for that. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful provision. And, and you know what's always interesting to me? How many times they adopt, and then the woman conceives. You ever seen that? I've seen it about 800 times. Now, how do you explain that? I don't explain it. There are no means. Well, obviously, God made a way. So you, never know, you never know when God's going to show up. I I talked with a guy yesterday on the phone. I've known him for a while. Uh, He has been... um, His story is pretty close to Job's. I I don't want to overstate. He's taken an incredible beating. He loves the Lord. Uh, He's in the place of deep disappointment. I, I know from things he has said to me over the years in discussions. Just, I know that if he could die, if he could die, he would welcome it. Because there's been such deep disappointment and there's just continued agony in his life. And, and he, uh, he called me yesterday and told me about something that has occurred in the last 10 days. And what has happened, and I talked with him several weeks ago, and he was about as down as I've ever, in our friendship, ever seen him. Pretty much getting to the point of losing all hope. And I have to say, I was right there with him. Uh, Didn't expect him to live long. And he called me this week. And he said, I'm not sharing this with too many people. And he was very hesitant. It took him a while to get it out. But what's happened is God has completely delivered him and changed his circumstances. And it's he's trying to assimilate it. He's shocked. He's stunned. And he doesn't quite know what to do with it. He's almost afraid to tell anybody. It's pretty wild. And I'm not going to give you any more than that because he asked me to keep it quiet. And I'm going to keep it quiet, but I can tell you that much. He thought he was done. He thought he was finished. Uh, what are these three phrases? Deeply disappointed, humanly hopeless. And I'm telling you, his situation was without means. And that entire situation has been lifted off of him in the last 10 days. Absolutely inc- a- a- astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. Now that's kind of where these folks were, so let's get to uh, let's get to chapter two, because as we said last week, in Ruth chapter one, in Boaz chapter one, chapter one's about deep disappointment. What's chapter two about? It's about the divine appointment. You never know when God's going to show up. You never know, and you're out of means. That's not a problem for Him. Ray Steadman used to say, "Resurrection power always works best in a graveyard." I love that. I heard Ray say a lot of things over the years. It's one of the best statements i ever heard in my life. When you think you're done, when you think you're dead, when you think your life is over, when your situation is hopeless, let me tell you something, man, that's when resurrection power works. God looks for those situations. And may I say this to you? He puts us in situations that are dead. Dead marriages, He can resurrect. Shoot, there are guys in here that had dead marriages, and now they got a ministry helping other marriages that are dead because he's made them alive. That we we got guys in here that whose lives were ruined by pornography, that lost stuff, lost. I was talking with a guy this week, lost everything. Was living the good life. Christian guy, church, the whole thing, family, everything, good, good. Lost it all through pornography. Lost everything. What does he do now? He ministers to guys who've lost everything through pornography. And God's resurrected his life. This is the Christian. This is what God does. We're not playing church. This isn't some Texas cultural Christianity. Well, that's just because you live in Texas. We live in Maine. Well, move to Texas. It's a different culture in Maine or in where you know what I'm saying. This just isn't a cultural thing. It's either true or it's not true. God's either there or He isn't. He can either redeem us and, and repair our lives and resurrect us. Do we get deeply disappointed? Yeah. Are we humanly without hope? Yeah. Are we without means? Then hold on and strap it up, man. Because He, he obviously is not done with you yet. Okay. Let's look at uh, chapter 2. Here's a divine appointment. They think they're done. This, they think they're finished. It's over. Watch this. It all changes with a guy by the name of Boaz. Boaz is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he does when he comes into our lives. Our lives are ruined. We're without hope. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And what does Jesus do? He, he came down from heaven. He emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges. Philippians chapter 2. He went to the cross. He did what was best for him. I I take it back. He did what was best for me instead of what was best for him. He he sacrificed himself. He he was without sin. He was the perfect lamb of God. He paid for your sin. He paid for my sin. He redeemed us, turned our lives around, gave us hope, gave us a future and a hope. The scripture says that's what this guy Boaz does. If you look, I got to get back to Ruth chapter two. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So here we see Boaz, finally, for the first time in this story. So who is this Boaz guy? It's interesting, throughout out of the blocks, he is described as a man of great wealth. By the way, he wasn't Naomi's relative per se. He was her dead husband, Elimelech's relative. But you see, family was bigger than we think of family in this day and age. A lot of times we think family, we just think immediate family and maybe, you know, aunt and uncle, your brother and his kids and all that. Uh, They had tribes, they had clans, sort of like the clans of the Scottish Highlands. Family was broad, family was extended, okay? It says that he was a man of great wealth. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because here are Naomi and here are Ruth, and they're homeless, they're destitute, they can't even get food stamps, and they're living out of the car and there's no gas in the car. They've got nothing, but here this guy shows up and he's a man of great wealth. Leon Morris says that exact expression, the exact expression rendered a mighty man of wealth is elsewhere translated a a mighty man of valor, Judges 11.1. We perhaps get the force of it by thinking of our word knight, K-N-I-G-H-T. This word originally applied to a man distinguished for military prowess. But it is now used widely of those whose excellence lies in other fields. In the Old Testament, it most often has to do with fighting capacity. Boaz may have been a warrior, for these were troubled times, and any man might have to fight. But in this book, he appears rather as a solid citizen, a man of influence and integrity in the community. And it's likely that is what this term denotes here, a man of wealth. He was a man of substance. He was a man of character. He was a man of gravitas. As Thomas Watson would say, he was a fixed star instead of a shooting star. A lot of guys make great first impressions, right? They just wow you. Uh, First impressions actually don't mean much. You know what means a lot is the 150th impression. That's when you find out who a man is. This guy was steady. You know what? This guy kept making impressions, and the longer you're around him, uh, the more you trusted the guy. He was a stalwart. He was a stud. He was a man of God. He was a pillar. It's interesting, one of the, I was reading today in uh, I think 1 Kings, and they had a couple pillars when, when Solomon built the temple for the Lord, and they had two significant pillars, and one of them was named Boaz. Boaz, strength, steadfastness, steadiness, no charge, I just threw, the, threw that in. Okay. we got to get hopping here. He's a godly man. Let me tell you something. God loves men, God loves to build men, and God loves to use men. Do you know that? God wants to use you. He wants to use you to make a difference in somebody's life who's hurting. He wants to use you in somebody's life who has a need. He he wants to use you as a representative of Christ. Don't you want to be used? Why the heck would you be here on a Wednesday night? You know why? Down deep in your gut, you want to be used by God. You want your life to count. See, that's why he's doing the work in your life. That's why he takes you through stuff. And I'm telling you something. He took this Boaz. This guy just didn't get here by living an easy life. He had some deep disappointment, as we'll see in a minute. But let's roll. Let's go to verse 2. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Remember, these these women are the the widows. No money, no stuff, no anything. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may favor. What does that mean? You just said that to your wife this afternoon. Let me go glean in the field. We don't talk like that. That's a different culture. What what is this about? Well, it's harvest time. By the way, these women were destitute. They were in big trouble. If you look at chapter 1, verse 22... They made their way back to Bethlehem because they basically have nothing. It says, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There's the providence of God and the timing of God. they had to come three months before, there would have been no barley harvest. If you look at Leviticus 19, verse 9, let me tell you what this is about, this whole gleaning thing. God instituted this in the nation of Israel, and he said this in 19.9. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, and this is the first harvest of the spring, which is the barley harvest. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. You leave the corners. You leave the edges. It was said of the godly men in the Old Testament they would leave a quarter of their harvest on the edges. They just wouldn't, they just wouldn't shave it. They'd be big sections. Who is it for? It's for the widow, it's for the orphan, it's for the alien. Because they're in tremendous need. So you leave some for them. That's what you do. So that's what she's talking about. She says, I'm gonna go out and glean from the field. Fine, you get to verse three. Here's the divine appointment. She didn't know what was coming. Hey, she's just a, a, a young woman who's embraced Yahweh, who's embraced the one true God. She's walking by faith. She's had all kinds of loss in her life. All she knows is she needs food. She needs to provide for her mother-in-law. She's just getting up and going to work and doing what she can do to survive. She had never read this book. She had no clue about her future. In fact, if if she looked and thought about her future, there wasn't a whole lot of future to think about. She didn't have a whole lot of prospects. There are times in our lives we look at where we are and we think, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And we look out, and all we see is gloom and doom, and we don't see possibilities, and we feel like we're used up, and you know, maybe our best years are behind us, or we're young and there are no jobs and no prospects for jobs. See, we look out and oh my gosh, listen, you got a savior. His name is Christ. And he has called you and he has appointed you, and he has a work for you to do. We are his workmanship, Ephesians two ten. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. That's true of this woman, and watch what happens, this divine appointment, verse 3. She's just going out to work and get some food, that's all. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. I love that, she happened. Actually, literally in Hebrew, it says this, she chanced upon chance. Which is ironic because there is no chance. This wasn't by chance. This was by divine appointment. So what happens? She happened to come, note the phrase, she she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Now what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, once again, we don't live in this culture. Let me see if I can find this. Okay, Um, John Watson writes this. Since land was apportioned by tribe and clan and family, what would have looked like a single field may have had delineated tracts that belonged to various clans or family members. So when Joshua took them in the land, they distributed the land. And so certain tribes, they would have hundreds of square miles of land. But then it would be apportioned within the tribe to the different families. Now here's the deal. So, you, you know, you, you had some land and then your cousin was next door to you and your, his cousin was, you know, you know, okay. But they didn't set up barbed wire and they didn't set up white fences with gates, with fountains. If, if you just looked, if just somebody just showed up and you looked out, you'd just see fields. But what you didn't realize, because there was no delineation and because there were no clear fences, it just looked like it was one big field, but it wasn't, it was portioned out. The way they would portion it, they would take small piles of stones and they'd put them on each corner. But you know, there were stones and fields and if you didn't know what was up, you wouldn't know that's what that was, that that was a boundary. In fact, the scripture says, don't move the ancient boundary markers. But she was a Moabite she didn't know that. No offense, she's she just going out in the field to glean. But chance upon chance, she goes into the portion of the family field that's owned by Boaz. That wasn't by chance. That was by the providence of God. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Okay. Now watch this. Verse 4. So she's, you know, she shows up on Boaz's property. Okay, now here comes Boaz. Uh, now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, Said to the reapers, may the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. By the way, I got to tell you something interesting. You know, it's just a greeting. What does he say? He says, may the Lord be with you. And the reapers, the guy that are doing the work out there, they got the John Deere hats and, you know, the whole thing. Hey, may the Lord be with you. What do those guys say to him? And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Well, guess what? The Lord was about the blessing. They didn't even know it. Larry Richards says, What is the blessing of God? Generally, under a broad heading, the blessings of God involve three things in the Old Testament. Number one, numerous offspring. Psalm 127 says, Children are a gift from the Lord. Our culture thinks that children are an inconvenience, but children are a gift from the Lord. So, what's the blessing of God mean when these guys said, "May, May God bless you? Number one, you have numerous offspring. How many offspring does he have? He has none. He's not married. He's an older guy. All of his buddies are married. All of his buddies from high school are married. They all got kids. He goes to their house for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and, you know, they're all having a good time. But he's not married. and He doesn't have kids. Here's the second thing. The blessing of God would be, uh, by the way, the first one numerous offering is Genesis 128. The second part of blessing would be riches, Genesis 24-35, prosperity. Oh, and God gave him that because we found that out in chapter 2, verse 1. He was a man of wealth. Number three, the blessing of God would involve victory over enemies. That's Genesis 27, verse 29. And see, he was living in a violent age. He was living in a decadent age. He was living during the time of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes and they would cry to come and steal your property. What else is new? You see? But what had happened? God had given him victory over his enemies. So out of the three aspects, broadly speaking, a blessing, he had two out of the three. Now here's what i got a question. As he goes into that field last night, that that morning, I have a question. I wonder how he was doing the night before. See, I think Boaz, and I can't prove this to you, but when you read Scripture, you got to get into the heart and fiber of these people, what's going on in their lives. Let me tell you something. A man was blessed if he had a godly wife, A man was blessed if he had children. Read 127 and 128 of Psalms. And he didn't have that. And he was a man, we don't know his exact age, but he wasn't in his 20s. He was probably closer to 40. Just ballparking it. I can't prove that to you, but I can show you that a little bit later because he refers to Ruth as his daughter, which speaks of the disparity of their age. She's younger, he's older. It wasn't uncommon for girls to get married at 15 or 16. But see, he doesn't have a family. He doesn't have kids. He doesn't have a lineage. I think that was a source of deep disappointment for him. I think he was a guy that potentially dealt with a lot of loneliness. Loneliness is tough. And life was passing by, and he may have been to a point where those dreams had died. So he goes out to the field just to check on his guys. May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. And guess what? He's about to do it. Watch this. Then Boaz said to his servant, so you know, he's you got a Diet Coke and he's just looking around, seeing how things are going. Look at verse 5. Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, uh, hey, uh, who, whose young woman is this over here? The servant in charge of the, uh, the reapers replied, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. So she's been out here working all day long, she's just taking a little break in the house. This isn't, hey, can I tell you something? This is a staggering appointment of two lives intersecting. Both of them deeply disappointed, both of them wounded, both of them with dreams that have been dashed, perhaps struggling at times with hopelessness, just as you struggle and I struggle at times because we can't figure out what God's doing, and it seems like everything has dried up in our lives. And my gosh, it's always going to be this way. And this marriage will never turn around and be what I had hoped. You can't believe the lie of the enemy. You never know when God's going to show up. You never know when God's going to change your heart. Have you ever seen God change somebody's heart? You know, Tony Evans tells an incredible story about his father. His dad was a longshoreman in Baltimore. It's a tough job. You got a lot of tough guys. His dad get up early, go to work every day, and then somehow, for some reason, his dad started turning on. wasn't a Christian, didn't know the Lord. He turned on the radio and he listened to this preacher named M. R. Dahan. Any of you guys remember Doctor Dahan, Radio Bible Class, Grand Rapids, Michigan? He had the greatest voice in the world. His he ate gravel for breakfast. And lunch and dinner. You can't even imitate his voice. It was like it was just gravelly. It was this. It was him. It was Mr. I, I can't even. I can't even get close to it. I remember being with my dad filling up our car, the '56 Buick Century, at that mobile station at Niles and was it Chester in Bakersfield, California? And my dad's filling up the car, and he's got the radio on. And I said, "Hey, Dad, who's that man?" On the radio, and he goes, Oh, that's Dr. De It's the first time I ever heard him. Never forgot, never forgot him, ever forgot him. Incredible preacher. Had been a medical doctor, came to know Christ, became a great preacher. Well, Tony's dad somehow starts listening to Dr. De on the radio. And he hears the gospel, and the Spirit of God begins working in his life. And you know what he does? He gives his life to Christ. And, and things start happening in his life. And you know what happens to him? He starts getting up. He gets up early and goes to work. But he gets up an hour early. And he starts getting his Bible and getting those Bible studies. Dr. DeHaan was sending, him. he started working through the Word of God. And Tony's mom couldn't figure out what was going on with him. And she didn't get it. And she began to ride him. And she began to give him a hard time. And she began to mock him. And he never said a word. He just kept getting up early and... He didn't ask her to go to church. He didn't. He just, he just started following Christ. And it might have been a year. It might have been a little longer than a year. And he's up one morning just doing his Bible study before he goes to work. And she came downstairs. He heard footsteps. And she came in and sat down and said, What has happened to you? What has happened? And he told her about Jesus. And together they knelt and prayed. And Christ came into her life as he had come into Tony's dad's life. And Tony was just a little guy running around. Isn't that wild? God changed a heart. God changed two hearts. How many hearts have been changed as a result of Tony's ministry? You never know what God's gonna do. You never know when God's gonna show up. What if they didn't have a great marriage? They'd tell you that. They didn't have a great marriage. What if Tony's dad had eh, "I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm gone." You know, there's no, you know, even after he became a Christian, uh, I'm, uh, he didn't do that. We we said a few weeks ago, uh, "Stay where you are and learn the lessons." Just stay where you are, man. You never know when God's gonna change something. All right. How am I doing? Oh gosh, Lou's giving me that. Does that say five, Lou? Is that what that says? I'm trusting that's five hours and not five minutes. Watch this real quick. All right, watch this. Watch for a safe. He gives me these time cards that I ignore just so we get you out of here on time. Okay, so you see this divine appointment in the field and all of a sudden these two people show up. Watch this. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen carefully, my daughter. Why does he say my daughter? Because he's a lot older than she is. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go from this one, but stay here with my maids. Why would she stay with the maids? Well, the reapers are reaping, and then the maids would go behind them, and they would have twine, and you've seen those sheaves in those old pictures? They would gather up the barley, and then they'd take the twine, and they'd wrap it up and put it in stacks. He said, you stay with my girls that are putting the barley together, okay? Don't go over there, don't go over there. You stay with my, my people on my land. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and, and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. Women had no rights. Women were vulnerable in the time of the judges. If you read Judges chapter 19, you'll find out about a man who gave hospitality to a Levite and the city was so wicked that the men of the city got drunk and said, we want to have sex, bring him out here. We want to have sex with him. And the the man said, no, but I'll give you my virgin daughter and I'll give you my concubine and you can have sex with them. And finally, he took his concubine and put her out there and they raped her for the entire night. Once again, Judges chapter 19. And then you know what this guy did? First of all, think, I'll give you my virgin daughter and my concubine. What is wrong with that? But the time of the Judges was a time when every man did what was right in his own eyes and there was no morality. The further you get from God, the more lawless you get. That's where our culture is. You want to know what our culture is, where it is, why we got there? Read Romans 1.18 to the end of the chapter. That's where we are. You say, it can't get any worse. Yes, it can. You say, that's pretty bad. Well, it got worse because you know what he did with his concubine? He took her, he killed her, and he cut her body into 12 parts and sent each part to one of the tribes of Israel. You didn't want to be a woman in that day and age. Women could be set upon, with, and, and there would be no consequence, and there would be no, no penalty. So what does he say to Ruth? What does this guy say to Ruth? He says, you stay in my field with my people. I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you were thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face. He's given her privilege. He's given her protection. Watch this. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your sight, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? He replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband have been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. Two more verses. May the Lord reward you for your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. She sought the one true God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things shall be added unto you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, might. It's not a halfway deal. You put him first, you throw your whole heart into it. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be, what? Added unto you. Meat, drink, clothing, all the stuff, the essentials of life, he promised to give it, give it to us if we seek him first. She sought him first. 13, she says, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant, although I am not like one of your maidservants. All right, that's how they meet. More is going to happen let me give you uh, Let me give you four truths for hopeless men without means. Four truths out of this passage. Number 1. And these are long. You won't get them on the first one. But but once again, I want to say this. These are these are four truths for hopeless men without means. That's not everybody, but it's somebody. Here's number 1 your situation is never hopeless because God will converge all necessary people, places and circumstances at the exact right time. You ne- Only God could do this. You're in trouble, you're desperate, he'll take the right people, he'll take the right time, he'll take the right circumstances and he'll So he can never be without hope. You never know when he's going to show up. Number two, your situation is never hopeless because God can suddenly grant you favor through an influential and well-placed person whom you have never known before. You read great biographies. I love reading biographies. It's my hobby. You know what's fascinating to me in the lives of Christians and non-Christians? At key moments, you'll see men that have been used, and you know what happens to them? Somebody shows up who's never met them before, and they are given favor with that influential person. You never know when God's going to do that. You say, I don't have a network. I don't have a resume. I don't. You don't need that. All you need is Christ. And you let Christ, you let Christ do it. You don't have to promote yourself. Psalm 75 not from the east, not from the west, not from the desert comes promotion. Promotion comes from God. Here's number three Your situation is never hopeless because God can straighten what He has bent. Man, my life's broken. My life's busted up. Oh, yeah? Is it? Okay, well, guess what? He can straighten it. You got a withered hand? Jesus says, stretch forth your hand. You know what's interesting about that? Remember that in the Gospels? Men with withered hand don't have the power to stretch forth their hands. What did Jesus say? Stretch forth thy hand. Your life's broken, he can straighten it. Here's number four. Your situation is never hopeless because God has a detailed plan for your life and existence. He has a detailed plan. It was A.W. Tozer who said this. He said, and I want to get it right. He said, God will not use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. One more time. God will not use a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. Why would you be hurt? Because you've lost it all. Because your dreams, your life is shattered. You've been hurt greatly, ah! but those are the men God uses. He takes their broken lives, he takes their broken dreams, their broken situations, often by their own making. And what does he do? He resurrects them and he uses them. It's been his plan from before the foundation. You're still alive, you're still here. That's because he has a work for you to do. And you can't die until you do it. So our Father, we bow before you. We thank you for hope. We thank you for hope out of this story. This was just a normal day. You got a lady trying to make it. She's trying to survive. You got a guy with a broken heart, broken dreams showing up to see how business is going, and boom. We never know when you're gonna show. We never know when things are gonna change. So help us in the interim to keep trusting and to keep our eyes on you. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.